Philippians chapter 1, if you came back from last week, from the second service, I know you guys love Jesus in here. And if this is your first time here, God bless you. You have no idea what happened last week. Last week, I was teaching about false gospels in second service, and man, was it a tough message. How many can take a tough message every now and then? You guys can take it every now and then? If I don't see, uh, if I don't see those people back, it is what it is. Because I don't apologize for it. Honestly, I don't. But I just want to let you know as a, as a preacher, as a pastor, how it is for me internally, I can see your expressions. How many know I can see you? Like I'm looking at you right now. I can't look at all of you at the same time. You know, that's a little bit hard. I could probably squish you into one section and have some of you like, and I can, you know, put you on the floor and maybe do that. But at some point, I couldn't do it, obviously. But I can see when people get uncomfortable. I can see when people get uncomfortable. And last week was definitely uncomfortable. Those who missed, you're like, man, what did I miss? Go check it out online. Go check it out online. Um, and I, I am happy that there aren't cam- there's cameras facing me but not facing you, you know, uh, because I don't know if we would like those face expressions. But what we talked about last week was serious, and it's important. And let me just say this. It was about false gospels. I talked about every false gospel that God put into my heart. I talked about Roman Catholicism, tradition, traditions in Christianity that are false gospels. I talked about uh, other religions. I mean, I, I mean, just wherever the Lord was leading me in that moment, I was going by His grace. I'm not saying everything I say is exactly as the Lord would say, but I think you get my point there. I'm trying to be sensitive to what direction I should go in. And then here's how it ended. And I, I want to be careful how I address this because I don't want to lose the reward of being obedient, but I want you to know how it ended. It ended on my face weeping for about a half hour as the band and others joined me at the altars. So we preach messages like that with tears in our eyes and brokenness in our heart. I am not okay with Roman Catholicism and its false gospel. I'm not okay with it. I rebuke it, I correct it, and I weep for those who are deceived by it. Now, I do not put every Roman Catholic in the same category because there is a Roman Catholic that can be saved. There is a person in that that faith that can be saved if they have a genuine belief in Christ as their Savior. In other words, they are the only... um, group that is outside of what I would consider Christianity as in, as in a fundamental faith, evangelicalism, it's, it's gone by different names over the years, that can have people that are saved within it. And it's because they have the right understanding of God and they have the scriptures. The, the thing that they have wrong is key, which is the, the, the message of grace and faith to receive salvation, Ephesians 2.8, which we talked about. But you can be in the Roman Catholic Church and have that, that message. You can believe that message. And if you don't believe me, just look at our reformers. Our reformers were in the Catholic faith, many of them for years, while they were saved and they were dealing with it. And so I believe God can send multiple reformations to that church, as well as the Orthodox. They're kind of the ones that always get off easy, but they're just as bad and I love them, but they're just as bad, and they need the truth. And what's sad is from time to time, you'll see evangelicals go to Roman Catholicism. You'll see that happen. I've seen it even happen.
happened with one of my friends. And it's sad because if you talk to anyone who's come out of this, especially those who have been raised in it, like my parents and others, they're like, dear God, no, what are you thinking? You know, but there's something romantic to them about it. And, and what it is, it's, it's the, you know, it's the, the bells and smells and being able to trace back the history. And you kind of get this idea like, oh, this is ancient. But I'm not here for the bells and smells. Do you understand that? I, I don't care what you dress up like. You're not dressing up like mother and me calling you father. I'm not doing that today, okay? I don't care what kind of hats you put on. And, 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 and all I have to do to my friends that do that, especially when they go towards Roman Catholicism, at least the Orthodox agree with us that they say to the Pope, nope, uh, with us. But what I say to my Roman Catholic friends is just look at your Pope kissing the Quran. You know, just look at what he does. And then what they then have to say is, oh, there can be vacancies in the, in the, the office of the Pope, and we can still have the church. And I go, man, if you've lost the Pope, I think you've lost the church, okay? Let's just be honest, because their whole entire point is Christ has built the church, and it's been built this way, and it's come down through the lines of the popes. Well, if you've lost the Pope, you've lost the authority there, in, in my mind. And I think that's a strong argument. Some people may not be convinced by it. There's tons of arguments against the church from different directions. But it's a disgrace to me for us to go back into that way of thinking. And I don't think Protestantism or what we consider evangelicalism is something that started with the Reformation. I believe you can trace what we believe all throughout church history. And I don't say that naively. I say that with a doctorate degree. Do you understand? I don't just read comics. I have gone to school. I understand the weight of what I have just said, and I stand by it. And I not only stand by it for Protestantism, I stand it for, by it for Pentecostalism. You can trace Pentecostalism in a healthy way throughout church history. What, what happened and what we have wrongfully done is we have allowed a state church, a large and in charge church, to dictate what Christianity is. And I've even taught this in the Bible college by God's grace that Pentecostalism is not, by definition, a restoration movement. The restoration kind of movements really are called Seventh-day Adventism or Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah Witnesses, who believe that there was something that was lost and then they had to restore. Now, don't get me wrong. Pentecostals have used that language before of restoration, just like reformers have done and said that they're reforming something. But we are not a new movement or a return of something that was lost. We are something that was always a part of the church but was suppressed and oppressed and has finally gotten a voice to have freedom. Do you guys understand the difference? And so there is a difference between us saying, oh, here's Pentecostals starting in the early 1900s, but you can't find us except in the time of the Bible because Constantine, which is always just a fool's errand when people want to go down there, they don't know what they're talking about, but that's something that somebody who took one religious class will say, something about Constantine, you know. Constantine changed everything. We as Pentecostals do not say that. We do not believe that. We believe that the understanding of a remnant church, of a faithful uh, minority is not only the position of the New Testament of uh, faith, but is always has been the position of the Old Testament faith, and it is, a, it is a, a pattern that God has followed. How many have seen that pattern in the Old Testament? Is God, oh, okay, I guess you haven't. Maybe I'll just, uh, let's go out of Galatians. Let's go to the book of Kings. One person raising their hands. Okay, well, let's go to the book of Kings. Let's go to the time of Elijah. I don't know where it's at, but I'm going to find it when I Google. So everybody open up to, I believe, First Kings. I'm going to show it to you. Go to the book of 1 Kings. 6,000 bowed their knee is my Google search now. 
going totally off my notes because I don't want anyone just to take my word for it. Go to 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 18. Look at your neighbor and say, we're going to be here a while. Look at your neighbor. We will be here a while. This may be a part two from what he did last week. No, I'm kidding. It's okay. I'm not upset if we don't know everything in church. It's okay. But I just saw by your guys' reactions, I'm like, okay, let me just explain this. Because it's going to have a lot to do with Galatians and the false gospel. Go to uh, uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 18. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 18. Elijah is discouraged at this time. He is a prophet in Israel. Israel wanted a king instead of being a theocracy led by a prophet, and now they're getting what they deserve. And in other words, God warned them, this is what will happen when you change the form of government. We're going back into a theocracy when Christ comes back. And so this is not what they were supposed to have at this time. They were supposed to be led by a prophet like Moses, then Joshua, and others. But during the time of judges and those prophets leading, they got discouraged. They called out for a king. They got a king of their own wanting, you know, the kind that they wanted was like tall, handsome, strong, and uh, turned out to be backslidden and wicked. That's what they got with Saul. And then God showed them that I'm still going to use this idea of kingship, but I'm going to bring a Messiah, so I'll use David as a type and shadow. But think about this. If the best king we point to still had adulterous affairs and committed murder, what do we see in the kingship there? It's not meant to be how we're ruled, okay? And that's part of what the Protestants used, since we're talking about that, what they used as a um, as an argument against having kings because, as I said before, the church married itself with power, and as they did that, it, both of them became corrupt. As, uh, you know, the old saying goes, you know, like perfect power corrupts perfectly or total power corrupts, per, you know, perfectly, something like that. And someone who can get that quote for me, that would be nice. But say it again. Corrupts absolutely. Yes, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that's why we weren't supposed to be led by a monarchy in that way. And that's why if you look at our founding fathers, most of them being Protestants, wanted there to be a democracy. Okay? Now, Elijah is having problems with the king, and he's now getting discouraged. And just back up to verse 15, the Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel, king of Aram, also anoint Jehu, son of Nishmai, uh, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Saphat, from uh, Abel, Malia, to succeed you as prophet. Okay, now look at verse 17. So he's anointing a bunch of people, and he's even anointing a replacement here, okay? And then Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of uh, Haziel, and Elijah will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Now, how many know there was a lot more than 7,000 people in Israel at that time? How many know that would be a faithful few? That's a faithful few right there. And so that's been a principle of God ever since the very beginning. Even the nation of Israel was a small nation among the nations. Like when you think of Israel uh, being enslaved by Egypt, do you think of like, uh, you know, them being the, the, the strong one or you think of them being the weak one? They're being bullied. They're the weak one, right? When you think about them being able to be taken over by all of the nations, do you think of them being the strong one or the weak one? See, it was actually a miracle that God kept the nation of Israel sovereign as long as they, they were. And the only reason they went into captivity is because of their disobedience. And then not only as a nation, but as a righteous group of people, most of the time, all they have is a righteous remnant. That's generally all they have. Somebody say righteous remnant. 
Now, let me just show you that in the scripture as well, in the Bible, that there's generally a small righteous remnant. Go to uh, Romans chapter 11. Paul's talking about this when he is teaching the Roman people, which is a mixed congregation. He's reminding them of the history of Israel, and he shows that this has always been God's way. Now, somebody say church history. This is where it's going to come back into play. So don't think this is just a rabbit trail off to the sermon. It's actually right where we're supposed to be. And I'm just showing you, I'm backing up the statement that Christ generally has a righteous remnant. We're normally not in the majority. Does everybody get what I'm doing there? Okay, wonderful. Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 1, look at this. I asked then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham. Okay, now he's talking about his credentials. Now look at verse 2. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what Scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appeared to the God, how he appeared, excuse me, how Elijah appealed to God against Israel. So now notice the connection. Paul is doing exactly what I'm doing, or I'm doing what Paul did. It's probably a more humble way of saying it. Paul is now is now going to look back on Elijah as an example to those who are discouraged about what has happened to Israel. Because did the majority of Israelites believe in Jesus? No. What did the majority of Israelites do with Jesus? They crucified him, okay? So now he's going back to that story. Do you, uh, don't you know what Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? So Elijah's, you know, making this complaint against Israel to God. Lord, they have killed your prophets, torn down your altars. I am the only one left. How many know he's, he's having a pity patty party there? God, I'm the only one. Nobody knows. You know, that's what he's doing. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? Listen to Paul preach to us. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now look at verse 5. So too, at the present time, there is a one. Come on, say it again. At the present time, there is a what? A remnant, thank you, chosen by grace. Now, going back to our notes in Galatians chapter 1, if you want a lighter message, listen to the first service messages, by the way. Like, we're just jumping and shouting the whole time. For those who don't know, I'm doing two different sermon series and two different services because I got bored preaching the same one twice, you know. So now, just to make it more fun and challenging for myself as a pastor, I preach two unique ser- uh, messages in each service. The first one is in John, and we're just jumping and shouting the whole time, okay. This one is like super serious and somber, the righteous remnant. The majority of the church is going to hell. There are false gospels. We're rebuking the Roman. Catholic Church, you know. Okay, well, we're just doing what God told us to do. And some of you are like, no, seriously, I'm going to first service next week. I'm going. I want to get some of that excitement stuff. I want to shout a little bit more. Uh, and then I'm going to probably switch it up on them, you know. Then, like, like after John, we'll go into lamentations verse by verse with them, you know. And then for you guys, we'll read the book of Psalms, you know, in which there are some, you know, some serious Psalms in there, you know, talking about judgment. But you get my point. Thank you for bearing with me. When we look at Galatians and we're talking about a false, a false gospel, just stay on the, uh, the title, please. I'll get into the text in just a moment I, because it's, it's, it's in, in general of the whole book here. What we're talking about is a righteous remnant, even at the time of Paul. Think about this. This is probably being written as his first epistle. That's uh, the position that I take. Paul is probably only about 15 to 18, maybe 20, 20 years maximum saved at this point, so 15 to 20 years saved, okay? 
right? And the church is only about that long, maybe plus three years. So you're talking maybe the church is 18 years old. Paul's only been serving the Lord about 15 years. And already he's saying, I am astonished that so many are falling away. I mean, think about it like this. By the time you get to the book of Revelation, as we've already gone through verse by verse, I think that was a fun series, right? When we went through there and we went through the judgment of the seven churches, the majority of them are backslidden, and that's only in 90 A.D. The majority of the churches have already turned from Christ, and Christ is correcting them. And some of them were established, well, all of them, I believe, that are mentioned there were established, I think, by the best we can know, by apostles, and some of them were established by Paul and were given the best uh, pastors, like Ephesus was established by Paul, signs and wonders, boom, shakalaka, they experience revival, he's there almost three years, they take all of their witchcraft, they burn it in the streets, worth millions millions of dollars, and he gives them probably the best heavenly-minded epistle, uh, Ephesians. That church was pastored by Timothy, who also gets epistles. And if you read at the end of uh, Jesus' judgment about Ephesus, he's saying they've lost their first love. God have mercy. So what we're describing right now in the book of Galatians, uh, and we're applying it to our time, has actually always been the scenario of the people of God. We have generally, whether it's looking at Israel's history, been a small nation. You're rooting for the underdog. When you're, when you're seeing David take on Goliath, you're rooting for the underdog. When you're seeing the prophets going against the kings and the people during that time, you're rooting for the underdog. They took Jeremiah and threw him into a pit. That's your hero. When you're watching Christ, you're rooting for the underdog. Most of the multitudes are against him. When you're looking at the early church, even though it's explosive growth, and yes, Lord, do it again, and I still believe in the greatest revival that will hit this planet will come in my lifetime. I mean, that's what I'm living for here. I want to see 100,000 just in Chicago, amen? But realize during that time, the church is still the underdog. And in the time of the epistles were the remnant. And so when I was preaching last week by God's grace against these false gospels, I, um, I understand what it looks like from the outside. I mean, you're talking about some of these Roman Catholic cathedrals. The, the whole church could fit in their lobby. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, they have buildings that are worth millions and millions of dollars. Their cathedrals go multiple stories up in the air. The artwork that's in there is worth millions and millions of dollars. The property, the prestige. I mean, you think about the Vatican and then, uh, you know, all the power they've had over the years. And then you look at little old me, you know, speaking against them. I could see how people would take that offensive from the sense of, like, who are are you to say this against them? Well, first of all, this is, this is not a contest of who has more money in the bank. This is not a contest to see who has more power. What this is about is who's living by the Word of God. And I would rather stand on God's word than the words of men wherever they're planted. If the words of men, like uh, the Greeks were preaching their words of men in the most beautiful of Colosseums, I would rather go there and die for the words of God than to believe the words of men and go to hell. In other words, as it used to be saved, uh, said, I would rather have God with me and the crowd against me than the crowd with me and God against me. So I'm not here trying to compete with them in that level and say, we're bigger, we're better, we're smarter, we're better, we're, you know, we're this and that, we have more power, we're better. No, what I'm doing is I'm calling them back to the Word of God. 
So thank you for those of you who heard that when we were talking about this. And, and then just to add to this, it wasn't just against their religion. It was also against other religions. I wept for my neighbor. His name is, uh, well, I won't say his name, but I wept for him. He's from India, and he's a Buddhist, and he goes on retreats over the weekend, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And what he told me he did there brought me to tears when I was praying for him. It came back into my heart as I was praying for him. He goes there. He won't eat anything. He'll only drink as much as he he needs to drink. And then what they do is they sit in poses for as long as they can without movement. He has told me he has sat in one meditation pose for upwards of eight hours. He said the most tormenting feeling was that he had an itch that wouldn't go away. I was on my face, though, weeping for him, thinking, dear God, open his eyes to let him know that he does not have to try to worship you that way because that is to a false God and an idol that gets some pleasure out of that, that the true God, you, are seeking worshipers who worship you in spirit and in truth. It broke my heart that he does this thinking he's touching the heart of God. He is not touching the heart of God. He is giving a pleasure to a sick, demented demon that loves to manipulate him. Do you understand? He is not giving pleasure to our God. Our God finds pleasure in worship from our heart as children as, he is our, as we are children to our Heavenly Father. And that's what I was saying, too, as I was thinking about my grandmother going to Mass every day, lighting the candle, confessing her sins to a priest who probably needs to confess his sins up here today. Are you listening? Talking about all of these saints and what they have done for her and all of these things. And I'm pleading with God when I was, at that time when she was still alive, I'm pleading with, with God to open her eyes to see that she doesn't have to go to Mary. She doesn't have to pray to Mary. She can pray like Mary directly to Jesus. She doesn't have to go to the disciples. She can be a disciple. And that's what's uh, impactful to me is because I know by God's grace after 20 plus years of ministry that false religion has a penalty. False religion has a penalty. And, I, and I, uh, let's just go back to Romans real quick to finish off this passage because I feel like Paul, uh, and I think we all should, when he looked at the Jews who had the, you know, the first covenant but were not, uh, you know, not following the second covenant, He was broken for them, going back to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, go ahead and scroll down a little bit. He said he wished that he could be accursed, cut off, so that they could be be saved. Keep on going there. Keep on going a little bit more. Keep on going. It's going to be a lot further down. might even be uh, right towards the end, please. There you go. Look at this. Verse 25 of Romans chapter 11. Look at Paul's heart. How many have a heart for God's people today? How many want to see Israelites come to Jesus Christ? Amen. Look at what he says. In verse 25, he says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you, uh, may, uh, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles come in. So he's saying, you know, um, I want to see the Gent- uh, God, God is basically saying, I'm going to make them jealous. The Israelites will become jealous as we can continue to preach the gospel. Oh, but where is it when he says he wishes himself cut off? Where is that found? I thought it was right towards the end. But it might be, um, might be in chapter 10. Somebody try to find it for me because I want us to see the heart of Paul, which is the heart of Christ. 
It's in 9. Thank you. A few chapters beforehand. There it is Paul's anguish for, uh, for Israel. Look at this. Look at verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Have you ever been broken for the lost that way? Look at Paul's heart. He's saying, I wish that I could be cut off from God. He's basically saying, I wish I could go to hell so they can go to heaven. At times I look at Paul and I'm like, I love the lost, but I don't know about that much, Paul. But I think he's speaking, you know, hyperbolic, you know, hyperbole. He's extending the language as far as it can be. He's wanting you to know this is how much I care for them. And that's how much I care for my Muslim neighbor who is praying five times a day towards an asteroid in a cube box. Are you listening? They're praying five times a day towards an asteroid in a box. They think that gives honor to the God who made heaven and earth. I have great anguish in my heart as I look at my Hindu neighbors, and I have quite a few of them in the neighborhood that I live in, and their devotion to these false gods. These gods are nothing more than telenovas. Have you ever watched a telenova? Sometimes I've been in the gym, and they'll have the words of the telenova, and I can understand, and I'm like, oh, Lord, they need help. Lord, help Maria. Maria needs some help up in this thing. Oh, what's going on with Juan? Juan and Maria, fix it, Lord. All it is is a soap opera. One God sleeps with this God, destroys this other God, makes this God, does this with this God. And these are your gods, supposedly. The figments of man's imagination or the demonic inspiration of these lying demons. And may God give us a heart for the true gospel. Because at the end of the day, each one of us have to be convinced that what we're following is true. Because maybe there's some Mormon today giving a talk in their Mormon church, right? Because we read out of Second Nephi. You remember chapter 25, 23? Would you put that up for us again, please? One of the most disgusting things you can ever see attached to Christianity is moronism. I mean, Mormonism. And I want to be honest with you, this is what it looks like. It looks like the gerbil wheel that you'll never get off of of works. But here's, but here's the thing that breaks my heart because someone there may be saying, well, I was raised an evangelical because sometimes their ads come up before a video because they're very slick in advertising. And I've watched some of their ads and it may sound something like this and may even be preached in their church today. Well, I was raised evangelical. And I was taught to believe that Jesus was the only way. And after that was death and hell. And if you didn't have Christ, you'd be in hell forever. But now I'm so happy to hear that we can baptize ourselves for our lost relatives. And there can be chances after the grave. And they can receive a kingdom. And I'm so happy to know that I can be a part of my family's inhabiting of a new planet. I mean, these are their testimonies. Everybody say, God have mercy. But you see, they're deceived, but they think, they think that we're deceived. So who's right? There can't be two opposing opinions and both be right. Right? Are you guys tracking with me? We believe in the law of non-contradiction here. Verse 23 of chapter 25, please, here in the Book of Mormon. Did you ever think you'd hear the Book of Mormon on a Sunday service? Welcome to Metro Praise, where strange things happen. Here we go. 
For we diligently, uh, for we labor diligently to write, to persuade our children and also our brethren to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God. It sounds like there's something true there, but let's keep going. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved and highlight these five words, after all we can do. That's a demonic lie. That's a demonic lie, and there are many, many people today believing that demonic lie because they have been deceived, and they feel sorry for you today that you've been deceived according to their logic. But we know that there are no two truths. There are no two logics that can contradict each other. And Jesus taught us the exact opposite. Go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. We're done with the Book of Mormon. Amen? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved. Amen. It is the gift of God. This is not from yourselves. This is not your effort at making yourself a better you. Well, I'm a self-made man. No, sir, you're a self-made mess. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. All of it. People debate over this. What is the gift of God? The grace, the salvation, Jesus, all of it. Jesus is the gift. The grace is the gift. The faith is the gift. Your common sense to understand the three things I just said is a gift. All of it's a gift so that no one can boast. It's not by work so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork. We are God's work created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The question that we always have to ask ourselves as Christians, what comes first in Christianity? The work of God making us a Christian or us doing good works to become a Christian? What is first? It's like that question, the chicken or the egg. How does the Christian answer it? What came first? The chicken. Read Genesis, baby. Jesus didn't make a bunch of eggs first. He made a bunch of what? Chickens. What comes first? Our works or God's gift? What comes first? God's gift. It's just like a child being born. What comes first? Their works or their birth? Their birth, it's obvious. It almost makes you think I'm trying to trick you. I'm not. I'm just bringing the common sense. What comes first with a child, their works or their birth? In Christianity, what comes first, your works or your new birth? The new birth, being born again. That's how you do all of the works. God makes you a work, his good work, to do good works. Why is it we can keep the commandments of Jesus Christ? Why are they not a burden to our soul? Is because God made you in the rebirth a new creation to do those good works. If I tried to take, um, you know, one of these, uh, these cars that are a little bit less expensive, like, you know, inexpensive like a Prius, and tried to push it like a, a Tesla or one of these other cars, that thing would break down. It wasn't made for that. But how many know a good vehicle will run good? It will do its job. You were made to run this race and complete it. You were made to be more than a conqueror. You were made to keep the commands of God. The commands of God are not a burden to you, just like 110 miles an hour is not a burden to a Ferrari, but it is to a Prius. You've been born again as a Ferrari, amen? Amen. We got some shouting and happy, happy times here. Go back to Galatians chapter 1, please. Look at your neighbor and say, that was just the introduction if you're keeping track. If you're keeping track, just to let you know, that was just the introduction. That was just explaining about what he was talking about. Well, really, that was the review. Here comes the introduction. Half kid. We'll combine it. Galatians chapter 1, 
Verse 1, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me. Notice that he does not think Jesus is only a man. He was not just a good person. He was the God-man. Notice how he clarifies. I wasn't sent by a group of men, nor by a man. There are certain people that try to make Jesus out to be merely a man. He was more than a man. He was the God-man. He was the creator of all mankind. Amen? And so he's distinguishing here. I am not coming by men, plural, or by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers and sisters are with me. What you'll notice in Paul's writings is that he refers to the Father as God and Jesus as Lord. This does not mean that Jesus is not God or that the Father is not Lord. It's just those two terms is what he uses so you can know each person in the Trinity. God is going to generally refer to the Father, and the Lord is generally going to refer to the Son. But both the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are God, Lord, Almighty, Creator, and so forth. And they share the same name uh, as Yahweh. As a matter of fact, just uh, open up Philippians chapter 2 so you can see where Paul calls Jesus God. And then we'll see the kind of Lord that he believes Jesus is. He doesn't believe Jesus is a landlord or a lord of the manor or in some type of a way of just a mere man master. Paul believes that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. That's why he calls him Lord, and you'll see it here. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 6. Let's go to verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as who? Okay, so have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature, what? God. So Christ Jesus is in very nature, what? God. But he calls him Lord. Why is that? Scroll on down a little bit more, please. It says that at the name of Jesus, verse 10, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is what? is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, going back to the notes, please, you can see the reference of where that's at. Go to Joel chapter 2, verse 32. Why does Paul call Jesus Lord? The Shema in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. The Lord is Ahad. And that doesn't just mean one singular person. That means one as a unity, a unified one, one nation, Ahad, one marriage of male and female. So the word ahad can mean unified one. Does everybody get that? There is one nation under God, but is there one person in the nation of the United States of America? No, when it says, hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one, it doesn't mean just one person called the Father. It's referring to the Father, Son, and the Spirit. How do we know that? Philippians 2 says Jesus is in the same nature as God. So now we know there are two persons who share the same divine nature. But at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and call him Lord. Now that is in the Greek, kurios, which could be used as landlord, could be used as Lord of the manor, master. But it also is used of the name of God from the Old Testament. So how do we know which one it is? When Paul says Lord, doesn't mean landlord. 
understand Lord? Because it's kurios in the Greek, and it has a variety of meanings. In the Hebrew, Lord, as you'll see here, and just highlight so they can see the Hebrew, please, is Yohevahes, the divine name of God. There it is. You're seeing it, okay? How do we know that when Paul calls Jesus Lord, he is not just calling him a master? Why? Because in the context we just heard, he quotes from the Old Testament that before him every knee will bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord. Everyone who calls on the name of who will be saved? The Lord will be saved. Now go back to the notes, please. We'll go to another reference. Go to Isaiah 45, 23. Who are you supposed to call on today to be saved? According, according to Joel chapter 2, it's the Lord. But according to Romans chapter 10, verse 9, who must you say is Lord to be saved? Jesus is Lord. Every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Philippians also said that too. Look at Isaiah 45, 23. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked before who? Me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. So when we say, as Paul taught us to say, Jesus is Lord, when we confess him as Lord with our knees bowed, what kind of Lord are we saying he is? He is Yahweh Lord. He is the great I am Lord. Amen? Amen. Going back to the notes, Paul says that he's writing from God the Father and Jesus Christ. He, uh, Jesus has been raised from the dead. Verse 3, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you see those two terms that are going to be used for the Father and the Son. Talking about Jesus who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Somebody say amen. Amen. Those are all references there, but just stay here for a moment. Do you see how important it is that we understand the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's our only hope to be rescued from this present evil age? Every person wants to be rescued from this evil age, whether they acknowledge it or not. That is the desire of all religions that have spiritual components to them and all secular religions that deny spirituality. All of them are trying to be rescued from this evil age. Why do you think they're going to space to be rescued from this evil age? Come on, somebody. Do you think they're just going to space because it's cool? No, they want to get away from this and go somewhere else. Let's see how far we can go to make it then just like this. That's why I love sci-fi because it always takes things to its logical, and a lot of these you know, uh, uh, authors are inspired by the Bible whether they know it or not because when you watch Star Trek and they go to galaxies far, far away, what do they look like? Like our galaxy, pretty much the same, Right? And, and everything going on over there seems like the same thing's going on over here. Everyone's trying to escape the evil age. Why is my friend meditating for eight hours and not scratching an itch? He wants to be delivered from this evil age. Why are people today going to pray to the mother of Guadalupe or to go put flowers at a water stain under a bridge? Why are they going to do that? Because they want to be rescued from this evil age. Why is it when I, when I visited Nepal and one of the temples there, they would spin these prayer wheels like they were on the wheel of fortune. Seriously, spinning their wheels. is because they want those prayer wheels to rescue them from the what? The present evil age. Why are Mormons being baptized for the dead? They want to themselves be rescued and the ones that they are being baptized for to be rescued from this evil age. According to the scriptures, though, what is the 
or who is rather the only person that can rescue us from this evil age? Jesus, would you highlight that part, please? Who gave himself for our sins. He gave himself for our sins. Think about the depth of love when we hear that. What do you give yourself to when you go to the job? Uh, why do you give yourself to the job? For your family, right? How many work a job for their family? Like you're providing for others. Okay, so the rest of you are either unemployed or you don't like to raise your hands when you're asked to do things. Let's try it again. How many of you work for your family and friends to do things nice in this world? You give, thank you, you give yourself for those things. But who gives or gave, rather, themselves for us to rescue us. Jesus. There is no one like him. Now do you understand, especially those who were here last week, and now everyone who heard the introduction, now do you understand why Paul, in just a few moments, is going to put God's curse on people? Paul is going to legitimately curse people. I'm not talking about blankety-blank in traffic, which we call cursing because it's unwholesome language. I'm not talking about that. He is literally going to say, God damn this. And it's not the hammer that just hit his finger. And it's not the car that just bumped into him. He is going to be saying, God damn false gospels. Why does he, this man, get to speak on behalf of God and damn things? Because he's called to protect us as an apostle from anything that says it can rescue us and it's not the one gospel that can. In other words, he is saying to us as children, don't run out into the street because there's nothing good for you there. And that's why he's using the strongest language possible. He's not doing what he's going to do in just a few moments because he's a super apostle or he's trying to boast in his own abilities. He's telling you at the beginning of the letter, this is not from me nor a man. It comes from God the Father and Yahweh the Son, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. That's what he's teaching us here. And as my one friend taught me as we were reviewing this, that he's going to show them by the end of the letter that religious flesh stinketh just as much as pagan flesh. That any flesh that gets in the way of God's spirit is always flesh. Because flesh wants you to focus on what you can do for God and what you do, 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 do turns out to smell like doo-doo. Does it not? Go to Isaiah chapter 1, please. How many want the grace of God to do good works? We're going to get to good works, but we first got to have the gospel that makes us a good work. Amen? Before we have good works, we have to have the good work of Christ, and we never move from it. We never get better than it. We never move from the gospel. That's why we defend it with our lives, even when tyrants try to take it away from us. Why is it some people are asking us for religious exemptions of getting Joe's cookies, another way of saying the vaccine? Is, is so that we stand on a gospel that says the autonomy of the human soul. If our God doesn't force us into heaven, then you can't force a, a vaccine on us. If you don't want the vaccine, that's totally up to you. And if you want it, that is up to you. But we do not believe in things being forced on people. Can I hear an amen from some freedom-loving Christians today? Go to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Look at what, um, look at what it says here. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like a scarlet, they will be as white as snow. 
Why is he telling them to come and be cleansed? It's because their righteousness has become like filthy rags in his sight. Show me where that verse is at, the righteousness and it's as filthy rags. A lot of things I need your help for today. Which verse is it, Bible scholars? For their righteousness is as filthy rags. And he says, I will make them as white as, I will make you as white as snow. Somebody gets a real cookie today, whoever gives it to me first. Isaiah chapter what? Yes. Notice here then, let's tie it together. In the beginning of the book, he says, come and I'll make you clean. But then why do they need to be clean? What does he say in Isaiah 64? What verse is it? Go to Isaiah 64 verse 6. Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6. It says, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are as filthy rags. You know what I do know about that? Because they drilled it into us in Bible college. You know what filthy rags are there? If you look in the Hebrew, it's the menstrual rag of a woman during her period. That is what the Bible is saying. Our deeds are like when we try to come to God to impress him. God, I'm not ready to serve you yet. Let me get my life right. That's like saying, let me wash my car before I bring it to the car wash. That's like saying to the doctor, let me heal myself before I come to you to check me out. Right? Let me clean my house before I call the maid. Let me cut my grass before I call over the lawn care person. I don't want them to see me with long grass. We're telling God, let me work on myself before you work on me. And what does it say here? It says, all of us have become unclean. This is the life without Christ. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We are shriveled up like a leaf. And like the wind, our sins sweep us away. So our sin deserves judgment. Now going back to Isaiah 1, I think the confusion of my placement of that is because he makes such a strong plea here in chapter 1. In chapter 1, in verse 18, he says, come now, because he's going to rebuke them for all of these sins that they have in their life. But he tells them at the very beginning, this is what I want you to do. Don't try to do this without me. Don't try to live holy without me. Don't try to do Christianity without me. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. In the King James, it says, let us reason together. So there's nothing wrong with reason with God. He wants you to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Though your sins are like a scarlet, they shall be as white as what? As snow. Thank you. Though they are red as crimson. Going to that example, the stain of a, a menstrual rag. Do you get the connection now? He's going he's to tell them, this is how I see it, but right now I will give you the solution. The solution is, though it may be bloody and, and, and messy, I will make you white and clean. Though red as crimson, they shall be white as wool, if you're willing. If you're willing. Somebody say, if you are willing and obedient. See, then you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, the curse is going to come on you. Please keep going. Verse 20. But if you resist and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Going back to Galatians chapter 1, when we see that Jesus rescues us from the present evil age, he is asking us, are we willing to accept that? If we do not willingly accept the gospel and we resist, we will suffer punishment. This reminds me of John chapter 3. Go there quickly and then we'll get into the gospel. Go to John chapter 3 verse 16. Notice how this works, everybody. You are already condemned without Christ. Christ. 
And so now you have to be willing to come to Christ, right? And if you don't come, the condemnation remains. So in other words, some people think they start off as a blank slate, and they think if they do more bad works than they do good works, that's why they go to hell. So they're trying to do more good works than bad works so they don't lose uh, this clean slate or they don't lose their salvation in some way because they think that they were given it at the beginning, and all they have to do to keep it is just keep doing more good works, right? But that's not how the Bible looks at it. The Bible looks at it the opposite. You're actually condemned already. And that Christ is solving a problem that you have whether you recognize it or not. And all of the good works you think you're doing to achieve that salvation are filthy rags, right? Everybody tracking here? Therefore, you need to come to Christ. So by not coming, by staying where you are, you are resisting. So imagine it this way. Imagine everyone being born with a disease that was terminal, terminal. Let's say everyone born with this disease, everyone dies at 15. So all of humanity, everybody's always dying at 15 unless they come and get the cure. So if you remain in the state that you're in, you perish. Does everybody get that? But if you come, if you willingly come, you receive life, and then you can live a long life. Notice how this works in John. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Do you want to perish or have eternal life? Which one? Eternal life, right? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Do you see how important that is, saints? Because when I talk to my friend like you do, uh, talking, let's say my, my one friend who's a Buddhist, what does he think to himself? He thinks, I'm not convinced yet of this, therefore I'm on more sure ground to keep meditating. At least when I meditate, I get a little goosebumps, I feel more self-disciplined, I've cleared my mind. Joe, you haven't convinced me enough of this, so I'm playing the safe uh, you know, I'm staying on safe ground. I'm playing it safely by staying where I'm at. According to the Bible, is he playing it safe, safely? No. As a matter of fact, he's a rebel in high treason against our God. Because the Bible says, if you seek, you shall find. So when I go back to him, as I've done quite often in our friendship, our children are friends, and we do get along. I don't always preach to him. We, ask, we, we sing Bollywood songs together. We dance Bollywood. We have some fun together. We just hang out, right? How many know you can hang out with people? All right, Jesus loves sinners, but too much to let them what? Stay that way, okay? So when we're hanging out, I always bring it back up. Well, have you thought more about what I've said? And when he kind of brushes it off, almost as if I've asked him to sell Plexus, hey, have you thought more about selling Plexus with me? And he says, no, man, I've just been busy doing my things. He's in high treason against God. Because the most important thing in his mind today should be whether or not Christ raised from the dead. Because if Christ raised from the dead, that changes his whole existence. He should not hear me make a claim to him about a person coming in the name of God, doing the things of God, then being crucified, raising again, and then saying he'll come back with all of these prophecies being fulfilled. He should not take that lightly. That is not a wise man. That is a foolish man. And in our world, we think that foolish man is actually a balanced man. Well, what do you expect from me, Joe? You expect me to become a Christian now? give up all my friends at the meditation clinic, 
you know, start going to church with you? Are you really expecting me to do that, to now say to my family they're going to hell without Christ and that they're idol worshipers? Joe, do you actually expect me now to become a Christ follower just like that? And we say back to them, absolutely. That's exactly what I'm saying to you. I'm saying stop your chariot right now. Let me explain a scripture to you. You see some water in the pond behind our yard? That's where you're getting baptized today, my friend. Because it's that serious to us. One preacher said it like this. They don't take us serious when we preach because we don't look serious. We don't talk serious. We give it to them as if it's the upgrade. Like as if his Buddhism is still going to work out for him in the end. When we talk to our Catholic relatives or Orthodox relatives that have put their hope into their, into their patriarchs, into their popes, into their saints, into their services and all of these icons, when we talk to them, we're not serious so they don't take us serious. As I shared last week at that altar time, when I was praying with my grandmother, I went to my knees and pleaded with her and intercede right in front of her. And some of you might say, well, that's, that's touching. You do that for your grandmother. No, I've done that for other sinners. And my grandmother and I don't even have that relationship. I saw her once or twice a year. It, it was the Holy Spirit that led me to my knees in one of the last times that I saw with her, pleading with her to accept Christ because it's only Christ that saves. Isn't that what we just read in Galatians as we go back to the notes? It's only he who gave himself up for us. And now let me say this. How important is that cure? If we were using that as an example, you can die at 15 or come and receive this cure. How important is that to you? It would be very important, wouldn't it? Now if I said to you, you know what, I've been getting some complaints that it's a little bit bitter, it's a little bit sour, a little bit tough on the tummy, so I've been playing with adding some sugar and food coloring so it can taste like jello. Would you say, hey, let's give that a shot? Let's try it now. Joe, water it down, put some food coloring in it, and give it to me like a jello shot. Hello, can I get an amen from somebody? You wouldn't want that. Amen. You wouldn't want that, would you? But why are we doing that with the truth of God? Let me water it down. Let me make a, a series about going to the movies, talk about Jesus and Iron Man, talk about this, have dancing side, you know, the girls up here, whatever, do the sideshow thing. You know, let's, let's do this. Let's do what they call the Rock, Rockefeller girls. What are those what, what women called? Rockettes. And what's that called when they do the Rockette thing? What kind of show is that? Does anybody know the name of that? Just slipped my mind. What? Yeah, like a kick line. Let's have a kick line up. I've seen churches do it all. Let's have pastor ride a motorcycle up here. Let's have pastor come in on a donkey in the middle of the Easter play. What, what would you want when it came to the cure? Would you want the jello shot? Would you want me to come in with a, with a motorcycle? Or would you want me to say, here it is. Take it. Would you want to see how serious I was about it? Now, I'm not saying that serving Jesus takes our joy. Jesus actually gives us joy. I'm happy to preach this message to you. But I have to warn you that it's a serious message, that it's not something we take lightly, that on the day of God's judgment, I believe as, uh, let's go to Ezekiel, please. I believe like Ezekiel said in Ezekiel chapter 3 that many of us will regret not having shared the full gospel. Somebody say, I'm a watchman. Come on, go back to Ezekiel. Go into the Old Testament. How many have read Ezekiel chapter 3 about watchmen before? Ezekiel chapter 3 and verse, uh, chapter 3 and verse 33. But let's go to chapter 3. He repeats it twice to him. Look at Ezekiel chapter 3. He calls him to be a watchman. Look at verse 16. At the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, I have made you a watchman. For the people of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. 
When I say to a wicked person, you will surely die, and you do not warn them or speak out to dissuade them uh, from their evil ways in order to save their life, that wicked person will die for their sins, and I will hold who accountable? Who we hold accountable? You. I will hold you accountable for their blood. See, I believe many of us don't take this serious enough. And that's why we think we're being more polite by not bringing it up, but actually we're being more lethargical. We're being more lazy. We're being more, not empathetic, but we're being more uh, complacent and pathetic. It should be something that we take serious. Going back to the notes, look at what Paul says here now to these precious people. And who remembers from last week the one way they changed the gospel? Was it through them wanting to believe in another God besides Jesus or the Father, Son, Spirit? adding a fourth person to the Trinity. Why, why were they getting rebuked here? Because they started committing polyamory and multiple sex partners? What was the act? What was the hideous act that now is going to bring God's curse upon them? What were they doing? They were circumcising. They were adding to the gospel circumcision. Look at verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. What is that different gospel? Grace plus works. Grace plus circumcision. He says, I'm astonished you're doing that and are turning to another gospel, which is really no gospel at all. It has no power. And if this gospel, the gospel of Jesus plus circumcision, and they had the whole Jesus part right. Think about this. If having all of Jesus right, but adding one component, like we're using that example of the cure, adding one component ruins it all, how much further from the truth do you think our pagan friends and family are? If just one thing, adding one thing from the old covenant, the work of circumcision, adding that to the gospel was now not a gospel, what do you think my friend has who does the meditation? Do you think he has a gospel? Do you think the ones who are going to the Roman Catholic Church expecting to receive forgiveness by doing all those works, do you think they have a gospel? Do you think the Jehovah Witnesses have a gospel? Do you think the Mormons have a gospel? Scientology? Or what about Oprah Winfrey and all of the people she brings on to teach that New Age garbage? Do you think they have a gospel? No, if the gospel plus circumcision is no gospel at all, even in this context, God have mercy on our culture. Now look at this, verse 7. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally damned. Let's keep up, my brothers in the back. Thank you for your help. Let him be under God's curse. What is that word there in the Greek? I taught it to you last week. What is that word? Anathema. He literally says to them right here, he says, if anyone preaches to you a gospel other than what we preach, God damns them. You see how serious that is? I'm not saying that we can't have compassion and love. I'm saying we absolutely should. Even Jesus wept for Jerusalem, but he still had to judge them. We are in a situation right now where God is going to judge the majority of his church. You are in a situation right now, like Elijah, you may feel like you're alone because God's curse is on so many churches. I'm not trying to say we're the only ones. I don't want to make that sin of Elijah, but I will say it certainly feels like that, doesn't it? And it's not, it's not the truth. There are others, but it feels like that. But here's the thing. You and I are not in a privileged position because we deserve it or we're better. It's simply we have not refused the cure. 
Do you see that? It's like the old timers used to say, it's one beggar who has received bread telling all the rest of the beggars where the bread is at. We are not any different than our sinful friends. I'm not any different than my Buddhist friend. I'm not any better than him. I am just better off. And now it's my job to go share that with him. But if he resists, now listen, if he and his family, if they resist, is their condemnation God's fault or their fault? According to our scripture, it's their fault. That's why when people bring up to you the problem of evil, we have a solution. His name is Jesus. If you don't want the solution, you're going to go where evil goes. People look around. Well, who's going to take care of all the evil? Jesus. He's going to throw all the trash to hell. Do you want to get taken out with the trash or get brought to glory with him? Do you understand? Our Jesus solves the problem of evil. All that you see on the news that disgusts you, that probably keeps you awake some nights, as it does my family, when you hear what people can do to children and you see the sicknesses that can come upon people or the dictators that can demonically rule over nations, it breaks your heart. It breaks my heart too. But God's curse is on it and God will damn it. Don't be there when God damns it or don't be where they are in their mindset. As the Bible says in Psalm chapter 1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of the sinner or sit in the seat of the mocker but delights in the law of the Lord. Do not sit where they mock this gospel. Do not bring yourself around the people to learn of them. You can be around them, be a co-worker with them, but do not learn of those who mock this gospel. Do not listen to Jack Black, Bill Maher. Don't listen to these movie stars or Taylor Swift. Don't listen to these music stars. Don't listen to friends or family who mock, ridicule, and disgrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said, let them be eternally condemned. God will damn them. God will curse them. God's judgment is upon them. Now look at what he says, verse 9. He repeats himself. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. And all God's people said, amen. Now go to Galatians chapter 5 so you can see what their false gospel was. Here it is in chapter 5. It says it so clearly, and then we're going to learn about the real gospel today. Are you guys ready? Okay, stick with me. We're not going to be much longer, but I want to encourage you. Look at what it says in Galatians 5, what their false gospel was. It is for freedom that has Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So by taking on a different doctrine, it's considered a yoke of slavery. Now look what he says in verse 2. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. And he repeats it. Like he repeated the condemnation and the curse at the beginning, he repeats this again. Verse 3, again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to keep the whole law. And obviously you cannot. And then he mocks them and he says, if you're going to snip sip, you might as well masculate yourself and cut everything off down there. Look at verse 12. As for those agitators, those who are talking about you needing to be circumcised, He says, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. That's your apostle. Are you ashamed of him? Don't be ashamed of Paul. Amen. Vinny, would you come, please? We'll play soft music as I tell you the rest of the gospel. Amen. We'll play the soft music. You ready? Amen. That's my daughter. She's ready for the gospel. I wanted to review and bring it back into context because I don't want there to be any uh, misunderstanding of what we stand for here. We take our gospel very serious. We believe it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe it's the, it's the gospel that Paul preached. 
We are honored to do it. We are one of the most evangelistic evangelical churches in this city by God's grace. And so when people hear us, they may hear us talking about the wrath of God, the judgment to come, the penalty of, uh, of sin upon a person's life, as Romans talks about. But that is not our focus. Our focus is the gospel. And if it ever changes from the gospel, we need to pray and ask for forgiveness. We are not here to simply preach the wrath of God. We are not simply here to rebuke false gospels, even as Paul did. We are to do as Paul did, and he will do further on, is to clearly and adequately and passionately preach the full gospel. We are to help them see the world that is in sin, help them see the light of the gospel. We should be their spiritual alarm clock and say, wake up, O sleeper, and Christ will shine on you. We need to show the Mormon that, yes, it's moronical to believe the nonsense of the American history being the lost tribes of Israel and becoming gods on other planets. We need to show them the stupidity of that foolishness, but show them more so the glory of Christ raised from the dead and that the work he did on the cross was finished for all of us. New life doesn't come through more works. New life comes through the rebirth and the one work of Jesus Christ. When he said it is finished, he meant it. In Christianity, you start the race at the finish line. In Christianity, you start as more than a conqueror. You're not trying to win the battle. You start with the battle already won. What you do now is stand your ground in victory. You're not going to win a battle that has not already been won. You're going to remain in the victory that Christ has already won. Do you see what Christianity offers? Not only is it true, it could be true and it could still be painful for us. God could have made it that way. God, I always say this to my wife, aren't you glad that procreation is fun? Because it could be painful. You know what I'm talking about? Making babies could be painful. Oh, we have to do it again. Oh, it hurts so bad. I'm so happy that making babies is fun. And married, uh, married sex is better than single sex, and it doesn't send you to hell. So don't have it outside of marriage. Amen? Man and woman in marriage. But listen, serving God could be painful. And even Paul talks about suffering, but that's never the relational aspect he has with God. Where is the suffering always coming from? The outside in, the world afflicting his soul because of the jealousy, because of their anger and hatred towards our God. But what does he always say Christianity is like for him? He's rejoicing in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. He has perfect peace. He has love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. That's what Christianity is like and what we need is the real gospel somebody say the real gospel going back to our notes go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 3 Paul tells us what the gospel looks like and sounds like if I said to you the gospel was the book of Mormon it's the grace of God after you've done all that you can do how many of you would have said amen if I wouldn't have told you it was Mormonism a lot of you, even in this church, because you still think that's the gospel. It's not. What if I said to you, the gospel is you doing a lot of good works and God doing good works with you so that you get saved in the end. Somebody even here would believe that. 
Or what if I told you, you can't be sure. You can't be sure if you're going to heaven. You're not, you're not always a good Christian. You're flawed. Everyone here is flawed. Nobody is perfect. So you know what? You don't know whether or not you're going to heaven. Only God knows if you die where you go. Many of you would say, yeah, that sounds about right. That's what the Muslims always say. Inshallah, inshallah, only Allah knows. Only Allah knows. Even Muhammad said he didn't know. But how many here can say, I know where I go? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I'm going to meet him face to face. I have assurance of my salvation because it's not in my prayers, my fasting, or my works. It's in Christ Jesus. And then my good works show that I have salvation. Look at what Paul said the gospel was. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, 2 Corinthians 15, oh it is 1 Corinthians, sorry, 15.3, for what I received I passed on to you. Paul, what did you pass on to them, even in Galatia? As of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom still are living. Isn't that powerful? You can go talk to them, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Now watch, that's the gospel. There it is. Now what does the gospel do in his life and what does it do in our lives? For I am the least of the apostles and I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. By, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Can we say that together? One, two, three. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. If you see me, Today, as a new creation, I am what I am by the grace of God. You see me today as a husband, as a father, I am what I am by the grace of God. You look at your neighbor, you look at your friend out preaching the gospel, laying down their lives for others. They are what they are by the grace of God. Because his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Because though my friend thinks he's working hard, he's not working hard for the Lord. By the grace of God, I'm working harder than him meditating eight hours. Because this is the real work of God. No, I worked harder than them all, yet not I, but the grace of God that was within me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach. And this is what you believed. If you believe the real gospel, can I get you to stand up, put your hands together, and bless the Lord today? Amen. Band and altar workers, would you come, please? The gospel. The gospel changes our lives. The gospel works in us and through us. How many know the gospel's working on you right now? I see, I see God's gospel working on me. I'm not lazy in Christianity. I see God changing me. I see God working it out for his glory. I see him keeping this command in me. Be perfect for my heavenly father is perfect. I see him keeping this command in me. Be holy for I am holy. I want us as a church to never fall for the 
fake gospels out there. Don't come under the curse of God. Come under his blessing. Don't resist it. And if you ever find yourself wavering in unbelief or doubt, go back to the cross where you first saw the light and ask God to rebirth in you that same love. Because I remember who I was without Christ. And I even think about some of my children. Let's have uh, Zoe come up. Can you give it up for Zoe as she comes? She clapped as I was preaching. Come up here, Zoe. This little one right here, you know, Zoe is life in Greek. You know, we learned about getting everlasting life in John 3.16. That word life there is her name, Zoe. Zoe may never know a time that she didn't know Jesus because she was always with the Lord. But what she can always know is what the Lord has done for her. And to know that without God, she would not be who she is. I bring her up to say, whether you're like me, who has a past, you know, that is soiled with all the sins that you can possibly think of, and you look back and you say, I need the grace of God. Or whether you're a child that's raised in the things of God, that realizes that need through the teachings and this one coming up to an altar call. That's my other one. You ready for the 120th altar call? Okay. This one has got born again, again, and again, and again. We can all see our need for Christ. Do you get that? Because you don't have to have my testimony to have an appreciation for Christ. Do you know that some of God's people never had our kinds of testimonies, but they always had an appreciation for Christ? Think about it. Isaac never had our testimony. But he appreciated what God was doing so much, he never wanted to turn from it. Enoch, other people in the Bible. You can see, so we don't need to have a past full of sinfulness to be grateful. My daughter and I, if we can, just as an example, we both go to our knees, go to your knees with Daddy, to the cross because we need Jesus. She's lived long enough to know that she's a sinner without Jesus. And that without Jesus, her attitude will take her to places she doesn't want to go. That without Christ, the lust of her eyes and the lust of her flesh could take over her life. The sweetest among us could become the most wretched, vile sinner if it weren't for Jesus. And so every day, she can thank the Lord for what God has made her to be. And for those of us who have come from those testimonies where we do those things that we regret, we can know what he has taken us out of. She's saying, Lord, never let me go into it. And we're saying, Lord, let me never go back to it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this wonderful service today. I pray that everyone will come to know and love you if they haven't already. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, ask him to be the Lord and Savior of your life. Just ask him to come into your heart. Confess him as Lord. You can pray to him right now by just saying, Jesus, change me, forgive me. I repent for what I've done against your, your law, your command, and I ask you to be my Savior. I ask you to come into my life. You can pray just like that and come up at any time. For those of us who are here, you would say you're already saved. Would you right now look at your heart and see if there's anything about what you believe that could be considered uh, false or incorrect about the gospel? Maybe some of you are here as overachievers. You're trying to work your way to heaven, even though you know better. Would you ask God to forgive you for taking away the purity of the gospel? You are perverting it 
with your works added to it. You're perverting it with bad theology. Accept salvation. Accept it. I know so often I talk to middle-class, middle-aged men, and I don't need anybody's help. You have to admit you're nothing without God. Same thing with the women. You're educated. You might have high positions in this world. You have to admit you're nothing without God. Not only is He your creator, He is your Savior. Do not be a lukewarm Christian or a Christian that mixes the gospel with whatever you think it needs. The gospel is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything few moments. Come on. And then lastly, if you're here today and you would say, yes, Joe, I'm living for Jesus. My heart's right by his grace. Like Paul, I'm giving it my all. Would you ask him to use you to spread that gospel this week? Come on. Just begin to pray for people in your world. Like how I have friends, pray for your friends right now as I pray for mine. So everyone praying, whether you're coming to Christ or whether you're a Christian, that's going to be more like Christ or you're going to share Christ. Let's pray these next few moments. We'll close with worship and dismiss, but don't leave out until we all pray. And if you would like to come forward, come up now. We'll dismiss in just a moment, but let's pray. Hallelujah, Lord. Use me to preach your gospel today. Thank you, Lord. I pray much.